Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It is time for part two of Unearthed, uh, part one. We just talked about uh, updates, shipwrecks, and repatriations, because there was a lot of all three of those this time. As is often the case, we're starting out with some stuff that I just didn't have a category for, but it was all very cool, Uh, along with some books and letters, some edibles and potables, some apparel, including more than one thing about blue jeans. I found that little pattern interesting. Uh, And we'll start off, as we so often do, with the, the, the potpourri, which is stuff like a Jeopardy category, just haphazardly thrown together because I liked it all. Didn't have a category for it. No pattern to recognize. Uh, So kicking things off, there is a stone structure in Cork Harbor in Southern Ireland shaped like a dolmen. That's a monument of large upright stones with a single stone lying across them like an arch or a roof. And for a long time, people thought this was something commissioned in the 18th or 19th century by someone at Rostellan Castle not far away, kind of as a decorative folly. But according to archaeologist Michael Gibbon, this is not a relatively new monument made to look prehistoric. It really is a megalithic tomb. It sits at the end of a long cairn that's partially buried in mud. And this type of tomb is known as a portal tomb. And there's only one other similar tomb known to exist in Ireland. It is not totally clear exactly when this tomb was made. These were usually built near the coast, but not actually in the water and this is partially submerged, the sea levels in the area are believed to have been about where they are today for the last 2,000 years, so probably sometime before that. Don't really know yet. A team in Canada has found the cameras that a pair of American mountaineers abandoned during an attempt to summit Mount Lucania in 1937. The mountaineers were Bradford Washburn and Bob Bates, who had planned to fly out of the region after summiting the mountain. 
but the weather was unexpectedly warm and stormy, and their plane sank in the slush after dropping them off on Walsh Glacier. Although the pilot was able to leave days later, the duo changed their plans to hike out rather than flying. This required a hundred-mile trek, so they abandoned a lot of their heaviest gear on the glacier, planning to come back for it later. But that never happened. I haven't done a ton of research on this attempt to summit the glacier. Some of the things that I read suggested that the pilot was like, I am not risking this again. You guys are on your own. Uh, And some characterized it more as the two of them being like, I think it's going to be safer if we do it this way. Regardless, though, glaciers move. So while people had a general idea of where this gear had been abandoned, that is not where it would be anymore. And then to make things more complicated, Walsh Glacier is a surging glacier, meaning that it moves a small amount every year, but every once in a while, it moves a lot farther and faster. Figuring out where those cameras might be today turned into a team effort involving glaciologists from the University of Ottawa. And in the end, they did find the cameras. They were more than 12 miles from where they had been abandoned. It almost didn't happen, though. The first expedition to find the gear was unsuccessful. But then the team returned in August of last year with a new estimated location. And on the last day of that second attempt, they found multiple cameras, tents, climbing gear, and other equipment spread out over a huge swath of glacier. Some of the cameras still contained film, although as of working on this episode, it's not really known whether that film survived the elements for more than 80 years. But even if there's nothing usable on the film, this effort has contributed to the understanding of how the Walsh Glacier moves and how much ice the region has lost since 1937. Moving on, researchers in Italy have analyzed the finishing treatments of two violins made by Antonio Stradivari in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, and then trying to figure out the makeup of a coating that was applied in between the wood and the varnish. Using a combination of methods and technologies, they eventually identified a layer of protein-based compounds These would have smoothed out the wood before the varnish was applied, and that might have played a role in the instrument's resonance. It was already previously known that at least some of Stradivari's instruments had some kind of coating in between the wood and the varnish, but we didn't really know what that coating was made of. Also, just a shout-out to listener Hadley, who wrote a press release about this research and tagged us in it on Twitter. Researchers in what is now the southwestern U.S. have been examining how different indigenous nations who have lived in the area have used fire management practices and how those practices have affected the prevalence and severity of wildfires. This research was led by Southern Methodist University with a research team that included members of the White Mountain Apache tribe, the Navajo Nation, and the Pueblo of Jemez. The team studied nearly 5,000 fire-scarred trees in Arizona and New Mexico, and these showed some evidence of a regular cycle of rainy periods followed by significant drought. But when indigenous people were using burning practices, this cycle was often interrupted. The indigenous communities who were part of this study all use burning in different ways and for different reasons and at different times of the year. But regardless of all those differences, at times when indigenous communities were carrying out their burning practices, there was often an interruption in the more destructive wildfires and the sort of cycle of 
wet weather to drought and burning evidence in the trees. This is not the first research involving indigenous fire management and the burning practices that we've talked about on this show. But it is the first time that research has looked more broadly at different communities' burning practices as part of one study, rather than looking at one community's practices and the impact of just those practices. Next, we will move on to several pieces of jewelry and apparel. First, archaeologists working at the ancient city of Pere in what's now Turkey have found a medallion in the shape of a Medusa head dating back to the 1st or 2nd century. It's believed that this was a military medal and that it would have been worn on the shield or the armor of the soldier who received it. This looks a little bit different from what you might be imagining when someone says the name Medusa. So it is not a monstrous face with hair made of snakes. Instead, this face is strikingly attractive with wavy hair that just looks like hair and then a pair of little winglets on top of her head. Yeah, I stared at this for a while being like, is that hair? Hair or snakes? Is it? (laughs) Um... And there's an older, an older similar Medusa head that it may have been sort of patterned after, where you can clearly see two snakes under the chin of the face. Um, and I stared at that for a while, to, too, to be like, are those two snakes? Or is that, what is that? Um, I spent a whole lot of time looking at this Medusa head. Anyway, uh, a farmer in Chechia has unearthed a bronze belt. This happened while harvesting beetroots, which I don't I found it delightful for some reason. This belt is made from very thin gold along with some copper and iron. And apart from being somewhat crumpled, this was in really good condition. The farmer did not crumple it. It was already crumpled when it was found probably because of the agricultural activity that had already been going on in this field. This belt is decorated with raised concentric circles with rose-shaped clasps at each end, and due to its size, uh, initially people thought it was a tiara. Preliminary dating suggests that this was made in the 14th century BCE, and it's going to be conserved and eventually displayed at the Museum of Bruntal. In other jewelry news, archaeologists working near Harpole, Northamptonshire, have found a burial site dating back to between 630 and 670 CE. This whole discovery has been described with a lot of superlatives, things like most significant. Uh, But one thing in particular has really gotten special attention, and that is a 30-piece necklace made of gold and semi-precious stones. That necklace has gotten its own superlatives, like most ornate necklace of its type ever found in Britain. A reconstruction of this necklace as it would have looked when it was new is really beautiful, with a string of pendants including gold Roman coins interspersed with semi-precious stones, and then a central pendant with a cross motif. We don't really know who this necklace belonged to, though. The only human remains that were found at this site were some fragments of tooth enamel. Everything else seems to have decayed. But researchers believe this was someone wealthy and powerful. She was almost certainly Christian based on the presence of an ornate cross that was buried with her. She might have been an abbess or maybe a princess who had some kind of a connection to the church. Archaeologists in southwestern Sweden have found a late Viking Age amulet in the shape of Thor's hammer. This dates back to the 10th or 11th century. It's likely made of lead, and it is embossed with elaborate designs. It may have been gilded or silvered, and there's a hole through the shaft, suggesting that this piece was worn as a necklace. 
It had not really been thoroughly cleaned or conserved yet when this was written up, so we don't quite know about the gilding or silvering if that was there. Now, closing out our jewelry and apparel, we have two different pairs of jeans. A first pair of work pants was salvaged from the 1857 shipwreck of the SS Central America, and it may be the oldest known pair of Levi Strauss jeans. These pants were in a trunk that belonged to John Demet, who survived the wreck of the SS Central America. The trunk that the jeans were in was recovered from the wreck in 1991, and then they were sold at auction in December for $114,000, including the auction house fees. Whether these really are Levi Strauss jeans is not conclusively proven, though. Strauss had set up a business in San Francisco by this point, and the Central America's cargo included gold that was on its way to Strauss. But Strauss and his colleague Jacob Davis didn't file for a patent on their riveted work pants until more than a decade after the Central America sank. News reports quoted a historian from the Levi Strauss and Company archives as saying a connection between these pants and Levi Strauss is speculative, noting several key differences between these pants and the first known designs by Levi Strauss and Company. Another pair of Levi jeans, and this one definitely a pair of Levi's, sold at auction in October for $87,000, including a buyer's premium. These had been found in a mine, and they are described as dating back to the 1880s and still in wearable condition. They have the Levi's labeling, so we we know who made these ones for sure. A lot of the coverage of this sale also made note of the fact that one of the pockets of these jeans has a label that describes the garment as being made by white labor. That is something that we talked about in our previous episode on Levi Strauss. We talked about that shipwreck of the Central America in that episode also. A lot of manufacturers, including Strauss, added labels like these to their products or used similar phrasing in their advertisements during a period of just increasing hostility against Chinese immigrants to the United States that ultimately all led into the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. We are going to take a sponsor break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit of DNA. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, 
You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be, with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Now we have some things that are related to DNA and genetics. First, according to research published in the journal Nature in October, Genetic differences may explain why some people survived the Black Death and others did not. This research looked at genes from 206 ancient DNA extracts. These came from two different European populations, and the team was looking at genes that were related to the immune system and looking at things from before, during, and after the Black Death. And they found that some genetic differences did seem to offer more protection against the plague. People that had these differences seemed to have an odds of survival that were as much as 40% better. Researchers speculate that these differences would protect people from plague if there were a large outbreak today. But today, these same genes are also correlated with a number of autoimmune disorders. It has long been speculated that the massive death toll of the Black Death would have altered the genetic makeup of Europe, and this is some of the research suggesting how. Moving on in 2021, the body of Gregor Mendel was exhumed so his DNA could be studied ahead of the 200th anniversary of his birthday. Mendel is often nicknamed the father of genetics thanks to his developing his principles of inheritance. He did that based on experiments with breeding pea plants, like tens of thousands of pea plants he experimented with. 
Exhuming him to analyze his DNA required researchers to get permission from the Augustinian religious order because he was an Augustinian friar and was also buried in a tomb with several other friars. The plan was to sequence Mendel's entire genome, but researchers also needed to look at his DNA to confirm which of the bodies in the tomb was his. It was prior to this already known that this tomb contained multiple other people's bodies. That was not a surprise. Researchers reported that their analysis of his DNA showed that he carried genes connected to diabetes, heart problems, kidney disease, and epilepsy, and other neurological disorders. The idea of exhuming somebody to do DNA tests for a recognition of his birthday raised some eyebrows. Uh, When asked what they thought Mendel might have thought about all this, some of the researchers pointed out that it's impossible to ask him, but that before his death, he did ask to be given a thorough autopsy. So some of the folks involved concluded that from that, they thought he probably would have been okay with it. Uh, I could see him being completely delighted by it. Yeah, Like, to think that the science that he seeded, essentially, could then be used to, like, more greatly understand humans in general and then specifically reflected back on him, I would think that would be cool. Yeah. If I were that person. If you, Yeah, then that's one of those things where it's like, there's so many different attitudes about death and what needs to happen to our bodies after we die. It's hard to say sometimes. Uh, but yeah, the idea of, like, so we're going to do what for whose birthday? <laughs> I see what you're getting at, but should we? Like, that seemed to be the tone of some of the conversation. (laughs) Moving on, DNA research has allowed officials to identify the body of a boy whose remains were discovered in Philadelphia in February of 1957. This boy had clearly been the victim of a homicide. Efforts to find his identity and figure out what had happened to him back in the 1950s were unsuccessful. And in the 1990s, his body was exhumed so his DNA could be analyzed, with a second exhumation taking place in 2019. An investigative genetic genealogist painstakingly created a family tree through mostly distant relatives, including some who had undergone DNA testing and posted their results on a genetic genealogy website. Investigators identified this body as that of Joseph Augustus Zarelli in 2021, and they publicly announced the name more than a year after that. Um, this is basically still a cold case involving a homicide, and so they, they released his name when they felt like it might help find a break in the case. This, of course, though, led to a lot of speculation about who the culprit might be in this murder. At this point, though, that aspect of the case is unsolved. And lastly, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded in October, and it was awarded to Swedish geneticist Svante Pebo, whose work has included sequencing the Neanderthal genome. He also uncovered genetic evidence that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred, with most people living today sharing between 1% and 4% of their DNA with Neanderthals. He also conducted the genetic work used to identify the now-extinct Denisovans, also showing that modern humans in some parts of the world share as much as 6% of their DNA with Denisovans. Now, we are moving on from DNA to books and letters, and the first several of these involve writing, but they're not on paper or parchment or papyrus or any of the other writing surfaces that you might be thinking of when we say books and letters. 
First, researchers found a 2,000-year-old flat piece of bronze shaped like a life-sized hand in northern Spain in 2021. And once this piece had been cleaned, there was writing visible. In November, it was announced that the writing on this hand may be a precursor to the Basque language. Specifically, it may be an example of written language by a tribe known as the Vascones, who lived in what is now Spain and whose language may have developed into Basque. If that's the case, this is a monumental discovery for two reasons. One, before this point, most linguists believed that the Vascones did not develop a written language until after Roman invaders had introduced Latin scripts to the area. Instead, it was believed that there were only a few written words in that language and that they were mostly used to mark things like coins. Second, although hundreds of thousands of people speak the Basque language today, very little is known about how that language actually developed. So this could provide some new insight into that question. In another potentially notable find, researchers have also found what may be the oldest example of a sentence written in the Canaanite language in what's now Israel. There are other examples of Canaanite writing from other parts of the world, including Syria, but those use a different script. This sentence is inscribed on a small ivory comb, which dates back to about 1700 BCE, and it reads, May this tusk root out the lice of the hair and the beard. Some of the things that I read uh, describing this described that sentence as a spell against lice. And I'm like, I don't know if it was actually a spell, but the fact that somebody just wanted to be super clear that their comb needed to take care of the lice, I liked that. This is a lice comb. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, an inscribed Pictish stone has been unearthed in Scotland, one of only about 30 stones found in Scotland to bear an inscription in the Oum language. This stone, which also features a knotwork cross and animal imagery, was first found in 2019, but it was not fully excavated for another three years. This stone was found in a kirkyard or a churchyard, but it may be up to 1,500 years old, meaning it would date back to before there was a churchyard there. Historians at the University of Leicester have found a name repeatedly written in a 1,200-year-old copy of the Acts of the Apostles from the New Testament of the Christian Bible. It's a manuscript formerly known as M.S. Selden's Supra 30. And that name is Edberg, and it's written in the manuscript at least 15 times. Researchers noticed this while using 3D photography and other imaging techniques to examine this manuscript. There are also some doodles that researchers believe to be connected to the text and not just random drawings. There were nine women with this name known to have lived in England from the 7th to the 10th centuries. And there's some speculation that this was the one who was known to have served as an abbess in Kent during the 8th century. Uh, if so, I, I think that's a fascinating little clue about who this person might be. And lastly, researchers using multispectral imaging technology believe that they may have found remnants of a star catalog created by Greek astronomer Hipparchus. This is in a manuscript called Codex Clamasi Rescriptus, which is made from pages that were scrubbed out and reused. So the star catalog is earlier writing that was removed and then written over. 
and it contains a passage that's usually attributed to Greek astronomer Eratosthenes, but estimates of when this work was written down make it more likely to be the work of Hipparchus, around 129 BCE. Now we are going to move on to some edibles and potables. First, a watermelon seed from a cave in Libya has provided some clues about the domestication of watermelons and how people ate them in the past. About 6,000 years ago, people used this cave to take shelter with their sheep, and the dry, salty air in the cave preserved things like watermelon seeds that otherwise would have decomposed long, long ago. The wild watermelon that the seed came from was probably very bitter. So unlike today, when a lot of people eat watermelon pulp but not the seeds, people probably would have been eating the seeds but not the pulp. The first evidence of people eating watermelon pulp is from Egypt about 4,000 years ago, and by that point, it had likely been cultivated to be sweeter. Today's watermelon seeds are actually edible and can be consumed raw or roasted. Also sprouted, I think. Uh, I do not care for watermelons, so I've never tried any of these things. You can have all of the watermelon anytime we are together. <laughs> the gasp I just made. Yeah, we can talk more about melons on Friday, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Archaeologists working at the Colosseum in Rome have found evidence of what people were snacking on during events there. They found traces of food dating back 1,900 years, including the seeds and pits from cherries, peaches, olives, grapes, figs, and blackberries. They also found bones from various animals, although in some cases these may have been animals that were used as part of the entertainment there rather than animals that were used as food. Researchers analyzing stone tools from China believe they have found the earliest evidence of tools used for rice harvesting. And this may fill a gap in knowledge of how and when rice was first domesticated in China. Rice is a seed, and before rice was domesticated in China, the plants dropped their seeds once they were ripe. But domesticated plants held on to their seeds until a person harvested them. Researchers already knew that people were domesticating rice in China by about 10,000 years ago, but there wasn't archaeological evidence of tools used to harvest it. But archaeologists had found small stone flakes, small enough to hold in your hand, some of them with sharp edges. They had found these at several sites dating back to about that same time period when we know people were domesticating rice but don't have a lot of evidence of the tools they were using to do it. So this led to the hypothesis that at least some of these flaked stones might have been used to remove the rice seeds from the plant. When examined under a microscope, some of these flakes had wear patterns similar to the ones that are found on tools that we do know are used to harvest plants that are rich in silica. Researchers also looked for residues on the stones, and they found phytolith residues. Those are residues from the silica structures that are found on plants like rice, they found those residues on 28 of the stones. It is possible that these pieces of stone were used in a couple of different ways to harvest the seeds from the rice plants. They have a couple of different general shapes. So we will talk more after a sponsor break, including talking about one of my favorite subjects, art. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper... You're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products, Products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. We are closing out this installment of Unearthed with some art and then some animals. First, late last year, there was a lot of coverage of a group of 24 just beautifully preserved bronze statues found in Italy. The coverage about them was not just because the statues themselves were so well-preserved, but because they may shed some new light on the historical relationship between the Etruscan and Roman civilizations. 
These date back to the period when this region was transitioning from Etruscan rule to Roman rule. And these statues show both Etruscan and Roman influence, including some of them depicting Greco-Roman gods and some of them being inscribed with the names of prominent Etruscan families. This area is home to thermal springs, and the statues had been placed in the thermal waters. It's not entirely clear why. One idea is that they may have been meant as some kind of offering. It's also not clear why this site wasn't destroyed or converted to a church after Christianity became the Roman Empire's official religion and bathing sites like this one were all shut down. Regardless, the statues wound up covered in mud and then left undisturbed, which kept them well-preserved for more than 2,000 years. There are a lot of pictures of them, and they really are gorgeous. Oh, they're beautiful. Uh, Next up, I'm already laughing because this is funny to me. The National Gallery of Art has concluded that the painting Girl with a Flute, which has long been credited to Johannes Vermeer, and it sure looks like a Vermeer, is not really a Vermeer. This came about after conservators and scientists took advantage of the gallery's closure during the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic to analyze paintings in the collection, including four paintings that were attributed to Vermeer. Imaging technology revealed that while the painting pretty outwardly resembles Vermeer's work, its brush strokes are messier and less precise. Conservators believe that the painting was made by someone who worked with Vermeer, but that raises even more questions since he is not known to have worked with assistants or students. Another possibility is that it was made by his daughter Maria, who would have been between the ages of 15 and 21 when this painting was made. And in almost a reverse of that scenario, an oil sketch known as the Raising of the Cross was long attributed to Rembrandt. But about 50 years ago, art historians started to suspect that it was really someone else's work Some went so far as to call it a crude imitation of a Rembrandt, but a two-year study of this sketch has concluded that, yes, it really actually is a Rembrandt. To be clear, this is not to be confused with Rembrandt's 1633 painting, The Raising of the Cross, which has not been in question. Although this might seem like it could have been a preliminary sketch for the 1633 work, it seems to have been created about a decade afterward. And lastly, conservators at the Cincinnati Art Museum have found what may be a self-portrait of Paul Cezanne, hidden under his 1865 still life with bread and eggs. This came about after one of the conservators noticed that there were cracks clustered in two particular areas of the canvas and that there was white paint underneath that looked quite different from the paint in the visible painting, which is very dark. An x-ray revealed a portrait underneath the visible paint layers. The museum is working with experts to try to learn more about the portrait. And if it is indeed a self-portrait, it's probably one of the earliest depictions of Cezanne. And to close out our 2022 Unearthed, we have a few finds about animals. First, genetic analysis of a bone that was discovered in Arala Cave in Basque Country, Spain in 1985 has confirmed that it was the bone of a domestic dog. And carbon-14 dating puts its age at roughly 17,000 years old. That makes it one of the earliest domesticated dog bones to be found so far in Europe. It also suggests that, at least in Western Europe, dog domestication may have started a bit earlier than previously believed. 
We've mentioned on Unearthed before, there is constantly new stuff being discovered about dog domestication. So now we know this was a 17,000-year-old good boy or girl. (laughs) Speaking of good boys and girls being dogs, archaeologists unearthed several dog bones at the Jamestown Colonial Site in Virginia over a period of three years, starting in 2007, Researchers have extracted mitochondrial DNA from these bones and found that these animals were more closely related to indigenous North American dogs than to dogs that the colonists would have brought with them from Europe. We already knew that there were dogs in the Americas before the arrival of colonists from Europe, but there are no known living descendants of these dogs today. Preliminary analysis of this find suggests that the dogs that were indigenous to the Americas were genetically diverse. The dogs at Jamestown don't seem to be related to dogs whose bones were found at another nearby colonial village. Researchers hope to fully sequence the Jamestown dog's DNA to learn more. And lastly, in 1924, archaeologists unearthed artwork dating back to the 14th century BCE from the North Palace at Amara in Egypt, and one of the most striking pieces was found in a room called the Green Room, It's a really beautiful picture of birds, lots of different birds, in a marsh full of wild papyrus. These birds are really beautiful and detailed, but until now, it has not been exactly clear which type of birds they all were. Some of the birds had been identified, including some of them being identified as kingfishers and pigeons, but others were more of a mystery. Conservators who were trying to preserve this painting in 1926 accidentally discolored it, so researchers worked from a copy that had been made before that happened. They cross-referenced the depictions of the artwork with modern ornithological research and factored in things like artistic license. I feel like uh, that's a funny thing. (laughs) There's a mathematical factor for artistic license. Um, It's not. And they believe they have pinpointed the species of several previously unidentified birds, including shrikes and wagtails. They also believe that the artist marked migrating birds with a triangle on their tails, which don't exist on the birds in nature. That's the end of our Unearthed for 2022. Dogs and birdles. Dogs and birds. (laughs) Uh, I have just a great email from Ryan to take us out. I love this email so much. Uh, I'm just going to read it. Ryan said, Hi, Holly and Tracy. My wife introduced me to the podcast way back when we were dating, and you have become staples of our listening lives, especially on long road trips. While this probably isn't an exciting enough tidbit to warrant being read on the show, which is in no way stopping me from hearing all this in my head and your voice, I thought I would share, since it is finally something I heard on the show where I went, Hey, I know a thing. Also, it was a good excuse to send kitty pictures. In the the behind-the-scenes minis, food, safety, and kitties episode, you brought up the pronunciation of Lewis versus Louis and mentioned Lewis or Louis Armstrong in passing as an example of using the French pronunciation. I'm a professional jazz musician and trumpet player, so obviously Lewis is a point of interest for me, and something I learned about him was that he preferred to be called Louis in the English pronunciation rather than Louis, as it would be in French. 
This stuck with me in part because his reasoning was that while he was growing up in New Orleans, the Creole French were considered low class and he and others of the time avoided French pronunciations and thus the implied associations. What has always been funny to me is that he actually preferred Satchmo, which was short for satchel mouth, which he had no issues with. It's jazz. We never promised it would make sense. He never corrected reporters or promoters who used the French pronunciation because he was generally non-confrontational and because it was not that big a deal, but he was apparently consistent about his preference and went so far as just to be quoted as saying, only white people call me Louie. <laughs> I'm just going to say that tracks. I try real hard to be aware of things, but I am white, and sometimes I'm just going to white up the whole place. Yep. Anyway, to get back to the email, I first read about this in Terry Tisho's biography, Pops. I'm sorry, I did not look up how to say that name. I'm sorry if I said it wrong. Uh, but have since had it confirmed from several sources, including now colleagues who actually got to play with him. Several sources like to cite his pronunciation in the opening line to Hello, Dolly. But to be fair, that could arguably be prioritizing and avoiding internal rhyme scheme over his own preferences. Just to make things more confusing, though, even Louis Armstrong New Orleans International Airport isn't 100% consistent on their pronunciation but if Lewis wasn't going to correct promoters, it seems like he probably wouldn't bother with correcting the airport authority either. Attached are a couple of favorite pictures of our cat's Koopa, mainly white with a Koopa shell pattern on his back, and his sister Goomba, who is slightly cross-eyed and a bit of a Goomba. They may not know they love you, but they do. And thanks always for making such a wonderful, fun, and enriching program, Ryan. Thank you so much, Ryan, for this email. It was absolutely worth reading. I loved reading it so much. And then I went down a whole big rabbit hole about how Louis Armstrong said his own name. And he did put out an album at one point, I think called Laughing Louie, which was definitely Louie in that name. But otherwise, yeah, he does seem to have called himself Louis all the time. And there were even people really close to him, like his widow after his death quoted in an interview one time calling him Louis. Like it's, it's, there seems to be just a whole lack of consistency of the pronunciation uh, other than he himself saying Lewis pretty much all the time. Um, the the airport in uh, New Orleans, I'm pretty sure, was renamed after him after his death, so he would not have been around to correct the airport authority unless I am missing something about it maybe colloquially being called that before that point. Um, I've flown through that airport, and reading that part of it triggered a vague, vague memory of being in the airport and hearing one of those announcements that's kind of like, welcome to Louis Armstrong International Airport. And my, my brain kind of going, that was very formal. <laughs> uh, but no, that's really how he said it. And I again, I loved this email. And as soon as I got it, I was like, I don't, I, I don't know why you would think this did not weren't being read because as soon as I got it, I was like, nah, I'm reading this one reading this one. Satchmo was short for satchel mouth and was a comment on his appearance, but he apparently thought that was great. Um, and I also, of course, I loved the cat pictures. Thank you again, Ryan. I know I've just sort of effusively effused all over this email, but I loved it. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcasts at iHeartRadio.com and we're also all over social media at Miss in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get your podcasts. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.